Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Nearly there, nearly there. Let's give him a few more secs. Yes. Right, uh, shall we? Right, babe, should we pray for you? Yeah, let's pray. You don't have to pray for babes. You can pray for Paul. Uh, Right, let's reach out our hands, shall we, if you feel comfortable. Lord God, we just thank you for this man. We thank you for what he's going to bring to us today, Lord. We we thank you for all that he puts into bringing your word. Lord, we pray you bless him. Amen. 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 Well, it's great to see so many faces I recognize, and also those I don't uh, welcome this morning. Fantastic. If you have a Bible this morning, then uh, the texts are going to be coming up on the screen, but it might be handy for you to follow. So if you can turn to Luke chapter 22, that would be great. I'm going to look at that this morning. This morning we're beginning our Easter series, and actually today we're going to be looking at what I think is actually the most, the most important, important night in history. And uh, Friday, we're going to be looking at the most important afternoon in history. And then next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the most important morning in history. And we're going to be thinking about this morning, by way of a title, is this, The Night of the Handover. Pauline, chronologically speaking, well, the, the earliest description of this night that we have is in, actually in 1 Corinthians, the night when Jesus was handed over is the language he uses. And the question I want us to consider today is simply this. By whom? Whom do you think handed Jesus over? But first, just to check you're all awake this morning, a little observational challenge for us. So on the screens, coming in any moment now... Clearly. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? Uh, Action. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. I know that was a little cheesy, but it's an interesting thing, isn't it, to when we look at things from different angles, from different places, in a slightly different way. 
So this morning, what I'd like to do is to look at this chapter, Luke 22, and we're going to divide it up into five different sections, and we're going to go through these segments to look at the various individuals involved and groups of individuals involved, and how might they be responsible in some way for the handover, and then also in what way or where do we fit in to this story. So if you like, we're going to begin with the ultimate villain, Satan, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how they might portray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to the crowd when no crowd was present. In some ways, the individuals responsible for handing Jesus over to crucifixion was Satan. Verse 3 tells us, then Satan entered Judas. And we see the cross as some dark, satanic, just titanic moment. And we're supposed here, in the words of Luke, to see, to see, well, actually, Satan is in part way responsible for this. This is a sick and twisted moment. This is as dark as things can get. There's a darker thing that ever has happened on this planet. That's why it literally goes dark in the middle of the day when he dies. That's why the animal and whips and the blood and screams in the story. That's why if you know the Narnia story, if you've watched the recent movie where the white witch, who's put the person being trade as killing Aslan. Well, there's no equivalent of Satan in the story, or Roman, sorry, in the story, but the people who performed the, performed the execution. But in Lewis's drama, it's the white witch, the white witch who... Well, she is the Satan figure, and with the howls and cries from all of her ghoulish kind of allies, she kills him there in, in those moments. And on one level, Jesus is handed over by crucifixion, or to crucifixion by Satan himself, through the agency of Jesus. But of course, we mustn't exaggerate Satan's power. We're going to learn that shortly that Satan asks, well, he asks to sift Simon Peter. And Jesus effectively says no. It's not like Satan has unlimited power here. He, he can't just do what he likes. But in the text, it's clear that the handover comes about because of the agency of Satan through Judas. So that is, if you like, our first candidate. But there are also, but Jesus was also handed over or portrayed by his friends. Because, well, because there's just not just one of Jesus' disciples that actually hands him over, like we might think, but actually there are two, actually probably all of them who are responsible for betraying Jesus. In, in this chapter, Judas betrays him actively in arrest. Peter betrays him passively in denial. But actually they both hand him over. Let's read verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me 
is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began questioning among themselves which of it might be who would do this. And if you can jump down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, today you will deny three times that you know me. Now notice the similarities between these two men, both friends of Jesus. And both cases, it appears from the text that they don't know what they're about to do. It's a weird detail in this story, which seems difficult when it comes to Judas. But sin deceives people. We have to understand that, that actually sin deceives it. Whether it's Judas's rationalization, presumably Judas is thinking, well, it's not, it's not that bad, is it? Because, well, Jesus, you know, he says, he says someone's going to betray me. Well, it's not going to be me. How on earth is Judas saying that, I wonder? Why is that Judas is not saying in those moments, uh-oh, the game's up. He knows what's going to happen. But sometimes, sometimes we're not really aware or we pretend to not be aware or we try to avoid what we know are the consequences of our actions. Our souls trick us, don't they, sometimes? Sometimes we think things like, well, it's not really that bad. Well, they think us thinking like, it's not as bad as it feels. You know that with sin? Somewhere in our souls, there's a, there's a voice that's saying, this is evil and this is bad and we shouldn't do it. But another of our brain, part of our brain saying, well, it's okay. I'm sure Judas was thinking, well, I'm doing it for a good cause. I'm doing it to actually further the real cause. People do this all the time. Sin tricks us all the time. Same time, we often, often think, well, I can just do it this once. It won't be a problem. Sin tricked Peter, actually, in being crazily confident about his about where he stands, about who he is. You'll notice he says, I'm ready, I'm ready for death for you. As much as it sounds sadly to say, you know, he wouldn't even look a servant girl in the face and proclaim that he knew him. That switch in a moment. But sin and pride get in the way sometimes. But there is a difference in their two stories. In the case of Jesus, verse 22, Jesus says, well, woe, woe to the man. In the case of Peter, in verse 27, he says, when you have turned your back, strengthen your brothers. Two men, two men, 
dramatically different, dramatically different outcomes between the traitor and the rock. Both of them are going to let Jesus down badly and hand him over effectively, give him up. But Judas is going to do it and is going to experience this permanent, this heavy woe. And Peter, Peter's going to do it and then he's going to turn back and he's going to strengthen his brothers. And ultimately be the person who preaches that first message at Pentecost. The difference, but what is the difference between the traitor and the rock? It's not the fall. It's not whether one was worse than the other. The simple, the simple answer is, and we've spoken about this before, it's repentance. After they do what they've done, do they repent? Both let him down badly, but one comes to see what he has done, repents. The other can't come to terms with it in any way, shape, or form, and actually eventually hangs up, ends up hanging himself. Let's lead from verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus with a kiss, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you portraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus followed what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered him, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officer of the temple guard, and the elders who had come from him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them and a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and said, this man, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. He said, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly that was the fellow with, with him, for he was a Galilean. Peter man, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I think this is a really moving part of this story. Clearly, Judas betrays Jesus and Peter betrays him three times. And if we could just say that, well, in some ways we could breathe a sigh of relief. I, well, that was one bad apple or two bad apples in the story. Then it would be easy. But in some way, it's way more complicated because Peter does betray Judas. And he weeps bitterly, and so do we. Be 
because I can stand here and say, so have I. All of us, if we're honest, can recall or recount events, situations of which we're ashamed, which fill us with regret, which, well, it's when we, we betray Christ. We let him down. And it's the but we desperately need. The but which is the mercy of God. I don't know about you, but I can stand and remember moments when I think, oh, I can't believe I've done that. I've known Christ and yet I've behaved like this. And those moments we can perhaps remember, perhaps they still hang with us. But the mercy of God is like this. Jesus reaches out. Reaches out to us and says, it's okay. When you've turned your back, when you've come to realize what it is you've done, when you've come to regret it and repent of it, and you turn your life around, what happens Well, you come back to me and I will affirm you, I'll encourage you, and I'll forgive you. And I'm going to tell you to go and actually strengthen, strengthen your brothers. That's how God is. It's happened to me. Perhaps it's happened to you. So Jesus is handed over by Satan. He's handed over by friends. And of course, he's handed over in other senses by, or other ways and guests, by his enemies. Verse 63, let's read from there. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him, Jesus before Pilate and Herod. This is the next section. It says, at the daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from our own lips. Now, this is the first in a number of trial scenes. And this is in the next chapter when Jesus is handed over. He's handed over by Judas Iscariot, handed over by the soldiers to the Jewish council, handed over by the, from the Jewish council to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate again, and finally handed over to the will of the crowd and to crucifixion. And Luke uses the same Greek word. He describes this several different events. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus, are you handing over the Son of Man with a kiss? Pilate released the man been thrown in prison and hand him over to the will of people. And Luke uses the word the several times because he wants us to see, he wants us to see that all these people, all these handovers were actually were very different and actually none of them wanted to be responsible for it. It's the classic hot potato story. The cowardice is real and it's extraordinary. I want this guy dead, but I don't, I don't want to do it myself. So I'll keep on 
handing over, passing the buck. And Jesus is handed over by everybody in the story. There's not a person in this chapter, actually, if you look at it in many ways, who's not responsible for handing Jesus over. Everybody does it, whether it's disciples falling asleep, whether it's Judas, whether it's Peter denying him, whether it's the Sanhedrin or Pilate or Herod, everybody involved in this chapter is in some way responsible for handing Jesus over. Close friends, would-be friends, fierce opponents, governors, fickle crowds, all of them, all of them kill Jesus. It's not just the Jews, not just the Romans, not just the leaders. Every single one of us has a responsibility for the death of Jesus. Martin Luther says, you know, we carry, carry his nails in our pockets. And the story is told in such a way in this chapter as to point the finger at all of us that through our sins have handed Jesus over to his death. It's a chapter like actually few others in scripture It raises the question, actually it's really well illustrated in um, a Mitchell and Webb sketch. You might have seen it. The two German soldiers are looking at each other. They're dressed as as SS officers. And one looks at the other one and says, Hans, are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? See, this chapter makes us ask that question. It makes us ask it, am I that person? Have I played a part in this? The enemies of Jesus have handed over by reading the text. I've come to see that actually, am I one of those as well? Have I been one of those as well? So Jesus is handed over by Satan, his friends, his enemies, which effectively, I'd suggest, amounts to all of us in some way. But then we come to the mysterious, extraordinary reality of this story. That Jesus is handed over by God himself, by God the Father. Verse 35 to 46, let's read this together. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with transgressors. And all I tell you is this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And disciples followed. And on reaching the place, he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about stone throws beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now in that part of the passage, there are two indications that Jesus is actually handed over to death by God. One very obvious and one a little bit less so. The first one obvious one, Jesus prays that he prays God the Father would take away the cup, the cup of suffering from him. 
It's one of the most extraordinary lines in the Bible. He says, not my will though, Lord, but yours. But yours be done. In other words, it's the will of the Father that Jesus go to the cross and be crucified. It's the Father's choice, the Father's responsible, the Father's decision. His decision, among others, that Jesus would actually go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. So when Jesus cries out in his humanity, please, Father, could there be something else? May there be something else? Is there something else? The answer comes back from heaven. No. No, my son. I want you to do this. To lay down your life for the sins of the world. It's a very clear indication that actually Jesus' Jesus' death is the will of the Father. There's also a subtle indication in the passage. It's effectively there because Luke knows some of his readers would know Scripture well. And it's it's a quotation from Isaiah 53 verse 12. It says it was written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And the verse goes on in Isaiah, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressions. See, the night before Jesus dies, he tells the disciples, I'm going to go fulfill scripture. There's a text that says, I'm going to be numbered with sinners. I'm going to be handed over to death by the will of God. That's the exact reason I'm going. Because there's always the plan in which we and the whole world would find salvation. It's through me being handed over by the will of my Father. And therefore, I'm willfully going. It's an extraordinary thing. So Jesus is handed over by Satan, by his friends, by his enemies, even by God the Father. But fifth, and finally, and in an extraordinary way, a glorious way, Jesus hands himself over. He wasn't forced into this. He wasn't some powerless, tragic victim. He went willingly. It's really important we get this, otherwise, otherwise we can make Jesus feel like this kind of unfortunate victim and a victim of circumstance. And even theologically, we can get that wrong. The Father did it to Jesus. No, see, Jesus and the Father willingly, joyfully did it together. You can see Jesus as a victim of circumstance or the devil, if you like, being really powerful and too powerful and overcoming or human beings were too overpowerful. There's nothing Jesus could do to stop it, maybe. But that's just not the case at all. Let's read from verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Fall into the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and thanked things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This is not the behavior of someone who's been forced into something awful by unfortunate circumstances. Everything about this moment, which still to this day is celebrated weekly by a billion people every, a billion people every week probably, Everything about this moment is intentional. Jesus has planned this meal as a Passover meal. He wants death. He wants his death to be understood. That he is the Passover lamb. That he is bringing freedom from slavery. That he knows he's going to die. He's prepared for it. In fact, he's eagerly anticipating it. Verse 15 says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal. This is really important to grasp because otherwise we can view this whole situation and think, isn't this just terrible? Isn't it just awful, that thing that happened to Jesus? But Jesus is saying, no, yeah, there is some awful suffering to come. But I've been looking forward to the result of this suffering. What comes at the other side, I've been looking forward to, to having this meal with you. So that I can tell you what it means. He's anticipating it, it says. He's prepared for it. Random details like the jar of water and the furnishings. He's given disciples a bread in the cup, which they want to understand and to celebrate in remembrance of him. He's, he's not just looking at the suffering, but he's looking to the other side. He says, I'm not going to drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. And then we'll have the biggest party the longest part you can possibly imagine. Jesus knows. Everything in this story is everything is setting up in the way that he understands. It's not just the result of people handing him over. Jesus is handing himself over for the sins of the world. Giving us a meal to memorialize, if you like, and experience the joy of his victory when we gather and when we have communion together. Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstance. He handed himself over for you and for me. That's why this is the greatest night. There are lots of tragic deaths in history. Lots of people who have been handed over to death by terrified friends or by gleeful enemies in horrible, unjust circumstances. But this, this isn't that. This is the deliberate, orchestrated plan. Strangely joy-filled. This is the work of the Father, Son and Spirit together to save the world from sin. This is in that Lewis scene in Narnia, this is the um, 
was it the walk of Aslan? That slow walk he makes to the table. Knowing that any moment he can let out a roar, the whole thing stops. You know, in John 18, this is interesting. In John 18, if you read the story that John, how John describes the event, you'll notice that there is a moment where Jesus says, I am, just the words up on the wall we've got on either side of you here. And John, John says, Jesus says, I am. And it says, the soldiers fell back. Just he spoke those words. Now you might, I don't know how many soldiers you've got pictured in your mind that came to arrest Jesus. 10? 20? 40? 60? Well, actually, in the Greek, the word used there describes a subsection of a division. It's between two and 600 soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And in a moment, in a moment, he just speaks those words. They all fall on their backs. He didn't have to submit himself to this. But he chose to. He chose to. The Lord was handed over by everybody. But no one could take his life from him. Rather, he chose to lay it down of his own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this astonishing night, Lord. We thank you for this astonishing power. And Lord, we praise you this morning for the victory that will follow. And Lord, we thank you that even though we are all implicated, Lord, we know, Lord, that this was not ultimately our, our doing, but all your mercy and your will, all your sacrifice. Father, we thank you we thank you for Jesus that he chose to go to the cross to redeem us from our sin to conquer the power of death because Lord he, that you love us and we say again this morning we're so grateful we thank you Father that we can turn our back we can turn away again repent and come back and you tell us Lord God to go and strengthen one another thank you victory for your victory Lord thank you for salvation in Jesus name we pray Amen
Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.